So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make sure your call, make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So far, let us pray. Well, Lord God, these are the words that you inspired. They are God-breathed. I pray that you would teach us from your words which are able to exhort, correct, rebuke, and instruct in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly furnished, equipped unto all good works. And I just pray that you would please draw us to you this morning. Give me wisdom to speak your word faithfully. And give us ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' great name, amen. So last time we looked at this text... We were looking at verses 8 and 9, and we saw that when we add to our faith these virtues, it will undo what is our natural unbarrenness and unfruitfulness in sin. And at the same time, we also saw that when we add to our faith, it, is, uh, it, it safeguards us from blindness and myopia. In fact, those who do not bear fruit, it says, are blind and cannot see afar off. And then the last phrase we looked at is that they forgot they were purified from their sins. And basically what that meant is that at baptism, people would forsake or purge old lifestyles. I used to be a drunkard. I used to be a thief. And they would break from that when they came to Christ and move on in holiness. But when they revert back to old ways, they forgot the break they made at their baptism and at their confession. And they go back. And that is the danger. And they willingly forget what they've done. And so this morning, we're going to expand on this once again. We're going to really close this section off. And so I have three points to draw out of verses 10 and 11. They are virtues and sovereignty. Number two would be virtues and apostasy. And number three would be virtues and eternity. So virtues and sovereignty, virtues and apostasy, and virtues and eternity. 
So first of all, virtues and sovereignty, and this will definitely be the lion's share of the message this morning, because these always raise the, uh, the thorniest questions with respect to God and man. So first of all, looking carefully at the text, you'll notice that it says, wherefore. Notice it doesn't say, therefore. They seem similar, but they're not. This is the Greek word dia, and dia says, on account of which, for this reason. And so it actually takes what's a conclusion, a therefore, but it also projects forward. And that's why it says, wherefore. And you get kind of the idea of whereunto. We're going somewhere. And so Peter is basically calling us from everything we've seen, and he says this, draw your conclusions from this and act. Don't just take messages. Don't go to church and say, huh, that was a pretty good sermon, and go back or do nothing. Put her in cruise control. The Bible says, put your foot on the accelerator. Wherefore, move forward. Steer in a right direction. And then it says, wherefore the rather. Now, some versions here will say, wherefore, be even more diligent. And that is a possible translation from the Greek. But I think our translators are correct by em emphasizing the contrast. Wherefore, the rather, instead of. There's a contrast, right? Because instead of forgetting you were purged, instead of relapsing, instead Move on, the rather, go somewhere instead. Take this course of action. Do you remember Jesus when he spoke of two roads? He spoke of the broad road and he spoke of the narrow road. Remember Jesus said that and the one road is it's wide, it's inviting, it's easy. There's no tripping hazards. You can see where you're going, it's comfortable. The other road is narrow, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, it's challenging. They're contrasting ways. There's poles. And equally contrasting are where these roads are headed. The wide road, Jesus says, leads to destruction and the narrow road to eternity. You know, if there's one thing we need to do in our Christian walk, it is get away from this concept of no man's land, as if there's neutral ground. It is war. It is vicious. It is vital. It is eternal. Gauge your life. Ask yourself, which road am I on? Which trajectory am I setting in my life? And so he says, wherefore the rather brethren. It's interesting because this is the only time that Peter in the entire letter will use this term of family relationship, a filial term. Brethren, brothers and sisters. Why would he do that here? Think about this. This is the spot where he's talking about growing in your faith, adding to your faith. What's he doing? He's drawing in language of family because the family is the primary place where instruction is made. It is the place where we raise people up, encourage them, steer them, direct them. And so he says, wherefore the rather brethren, brothers and sisters, those who belong, belong sorry, to the household of God, pay attention. Expect urgency in the family. Expect loving concern among this body of believers. Expect calls to action. We shouldn't be a church that's just always like, oh, that's nice, and move away. No, we should be exhorting one another, pushing one another on, pressing, as Jesus says, into the kingdom of our great God. And that leads us to our, our theme word, spudazzo. You hear it, speed on, give all diligence. That's the word, to press forward. 
Notice what he does here. If you look back at your text, he's got verse 10 here. It says, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence. There's our diligence word. But if you look back at the beginning of all these things, verse 5, and beside this, giving all diligence. So spudazzo is at the bookends of all of these exhortations and warnings in between because diligence is what is the hallmark of adding to our faith. It is the word to, to move on and to press. Maybe, maybe you feel in your life your diligence is slacking. Maybe you have come here this morning and you have lost the sense of urgency in your life, the sense of moving on. Perhaps it's the busyness, your work this past week. You got so busy on, on the farm or in the home or in the family and it, it clouded and it became like a fog to eternal things and you became myopic in one sense, nearsighted. And so the challenge here of these bookends of giving all diligence is this, that we get the command at the front end, exhort one another, but he grounds it throughout and then reminds them of the challenge once again. A bookending kind of theology is really important. We see all through scriptures. These are called formally inclusios. One word, one word, and in between substance. The reason we do that is because we need to meditate on things, meditate on commandments, and then close with them again. Be refreshed with the reasons why we do things. Because if you look at, at verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, and 11, they're all grounding, they're all furthering, they're all deepening these things. And so we have to remember that because we're so prone to fall asleep. I had to think here when I was, was meditating on this word diligence of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a classic. I would encourage anybody young or old, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, put it on your shelf and read it. You will be blessed by reading that great literary classic. Anyways, this is man Christian. He's the main character. He refers, obviously, to Christian. And he goes up after he's born again, after he's saved, on the hill of difficulty. Well, the word speaks for itself. And on the road, on the way up, and it's hard. There's a little arbor. And it's a place to find rest. Well, what does Pilgrim do there? Or sorry, Pilgrim. Christian, on his pilgrimage, he falls asleep. He wasn't supposed to do that. He lost his diligence. And you know what he says after he falls asleep? He wakes up and he loses his scroll while he slept, right? Because you sleep and what was in your hand falls out. And he says this in, in, in classic Bunyan language. He says, thus, therefore, he now went on his way once he lost his scroll. Because he has to backtrack. He has to find this thing, right? He moved on. He's like, oh, I lost my scroll. He backtracks, bewailing his sinful sleep. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, that I should sleep in the daytime, that I should sleep in the midst of difficulty, that I should so indulge the flesh as to use that rest for the ease of my flesh, which the Lord of the hill hath erected or made holy for a relief to the spirits of pilgrims. Spiritual rest is vital, but how we quickly rest in our diligence and we lose things, beware of spiritual slumber. Keep that which is most important before you. So moving on from there, we get to the next and probably the most challenging phrase in the text. Wherefore the rather brethren giving diligence to what? 
to make your calling and election sure. That is a theological challenge because the obvious question would be, how do we square our effort, our responsibilities, our actions on the one side with God's sovereignty and his grace in our salvation on the other side? Now, Peter doesn't sidestep the issue. He doesn't sidestep the question at all. This seeming landmine, he walks right over it. In fact, Peter doesn't set the two against each other, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. He actually joins them in one phrase by saying, give diligence to make your calling. So give diligence is a work on our side. To give your calling and election, God's side, sure. We have to be clear what these two words mean, calling and election, because there's different understandings here. The word klesis, to call, is not just merely an invitation, like we're calling somebody to come. It can be. There is, in theological terms, two types of callings. There is what's called the general call, which is the heralding of gospels to all people. If you're here this morning, you're hearing the gospel, you are receiving the general call of the gospel. But there's also what's known as the effectual call. And the effectual call is this. It is when God conquers a sinner's natural inclination to rebel so that the sinner then willingly places his faith in Jesus Christ. The difference between the general and the effectual call can be summed up as Kurt Daniel said so well when he said this. Men give the first. The spirit alone gives the second. Now, which of the two is it? Look back at verse 3. According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us. This is the effectual call. This is the sovereign spiritual call where he takes hearts of stone, transplants them, wakes the sinners up, ears here, and they move on and hear. That's the call we're dealing with here. Now, that word to call is inseparably, inseparably tied with election, and that's why he says it next. Electo, ek logeo. Simply, this word, election, as we might understand as we have federal elections or provincial elections, is picking, choosing, selecting. In uh, the ancient Greek world, military or political people were selected or elected based on their merits, their character, what they had done. But not with us, not with God's divine election. In our election, in the election of sinners to himself, God sees no merit in man. It is before man is even born. But God, out of his free grace, with nothing good in us, nothing, not an iota, chose to pick a bride for his son on whom he would bestow all of his love. This bride is comprised of individuals, the Bible says, who were chosen before the foundation of the world. And really, divine election is the substrata, the basis of the calling. There's many verses I could quote. I will only do one. Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, it says this. Paul says to Timothy that God who hath saved us and called us, there's our calling, with a holy calling, 
not according to our works. There's the diligence, our works. It, it was not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, this side, God's side, and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus, and in case we miss it, before the world began. If you notice, election, which is before creation, then precedes calling, which is in time. Perhaps it's interesting here that Peter says calling and election. You'd think logically he should have said election and calling, right? Because election precedes calling, but he doesn't. Why would he do that? Perhaps it's because Peter says that to remind us to what we responded. We responded to calling. It is as he called us, effectually, we responded, and diligence corresponds to that. That could be. But even more, I think it's because he's ending on election. Because of the foundational nature of election, being last, grounding the calling, Peter is, by doing that, drawing us to close our thoughts in this phrase with the humility of God's sovereignty in our calling. Anyone here who is a Christian is only a Christian, only believes because of God. There is nothing in us. We're no better than anyone else. We have nothing to offer. And God chose sinners to himself. And that should humble us in all our diligence. We should stoop low. We should be small. We should remember, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name be all the glory and the praise. Now, that moves us to the question of what does it mean then to make it sure? Okay, so what, how do these two synthesize together? How do you make your calling an election sure? This word, to make sure, is a legal term in Greek literature. It means to ratify or to confirm, to make fast, to make sure, to make binding. Those are different synonyms. So how do you make your calling and election sure? Think about this. Something that is by nature God's choice, which is sure from eternity. That, that doesn't seem to make sense. Do we, by our good works, make God's calling and election in us binding? That, that makes no sense to think that way. In fact, consider this from Romans 11, one of those vital powerhouse verses, 11.29, saying, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They are without repentance. They cannot be withdrawn. They cannot be changed. We are not able to penetrate into the deep counsels of God. And that is why we have this language of making it sure, right? We can't know the mind of God. How many people haven't asked, how do I know I'm elect? How do I know I'm chosen? Because many people have claimed faith only to fall away, to apostatize. So how do we know? And that is where Peter goes. Because Peter is speaking here with the coin of election or of salvation. There's God's side and man's side, one and the same coin. God's elect will persevere. And now he's speaking on the underside, this side of glory, about our side, how we can confirm our election. Making sure means this. It means that the growth in the Christian life is the objective, outward means by which we confirm God's election of us. We confirm it to be genuine by our faith growing. Now, that might still confuse you. 
And here's an analogy, and every analogy has holes in it, so don't poke it apart. Just hear the substance of it. Imagine that you, a beggar, are freely given a house by a gracious benefactor who determined to give it to you before you even went out and squandered your life on the streets. Your reception of the title of that house at that point in time when it was given to you would be akin to coming to faith, the title. But it is not until you live in that house that you make sure or confirm the gift, right? When you have the title, it belongs to you, but dwelling in it actually codifies it, sets it in stone, because now everybody knows that's his house, right? And that's a little bit the analogy I was thinking. Similarly, we are elected freely from eternity, effectually called by the Spirit who applies the gospel. We receive the title, as it were, when we came to faith. And at that time, we, we were saved, we are justified, we are counted as righteous. But it is not until we live in that faith, add to the faith, that we confirm or make sure what is already ours. I had to think here of the famous verse, the very familiar verse to many of us, Ephesians 2. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourself. Boom, this side. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of this side, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What does it say next? Unto good works, which God hath prepared in advance that we should walk in them. That's drawing the two together. It teaches us that calling and election are solely God work, God's work, and it secures not just the goal, right? God's election doesn't just give us the goal, glory. It also, this is really interesting, it secures the means, the road by which we get to that goal, and that is holiness. There is no other way to heaven. The narrow road is a road of holiness. It is the road of pressing on. It is the road of moving forward in the kingdom. Now, does this mean that Christians then stand head and shoulders morally above unbelievers? Does this mean we're so much better because we're adding to our faith? No, it doesn't. Like I said earlier, we're all of the same ilk. We're all sinners saved by grace. And yet, at the same time, the virtues that we add are better. And here's why. Because the substance of these virtues are different. You can have unbelievers that are patient, kind, beneficent, loving, all these different things. The difference, however, is that they are not Godward. They're not on the road to glorify God. In fact, faith, as it is the foundation of all of these virtues, is by nature towards God. That is faith. Knowledge is ultimately of God and his ways. Temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, and charity, or love, are grounded ultimately in God. And godliness, the one I didn't talk about yet, speaks for itself is Godward. It is very, the very fear of God in our lives. And so you see, virtues are only morally substantial. They only mean something in the eyes of God when they are towards God. And we must add virtues that are Godward. Don't just conform and do it for yourself. That's not a virtue. It's a virtue when it is done to the glory of God. Virtues also 
must be added to. We need all of them. You can't pick and choose. There's not a buffet here. Now, all of this means, again, to ground Peter's exhortation that God will not tolerate false professors. If you have, and you're sitting here this morning, if you have no desire for growth, if you have no desire to increase in the knowledge of God, if there's no holy war pressing in your life, then you have every reason this morning to quiver and to tremble in your seats because the road you are effectively showing yourself to be on is the low road that leads to destruction. So tremble this morning and shake if there is no war in your life. Now this may make some of you uncomfortable. You might be sitting here and thinking, well, man, I thought it was all of grace. How come you're talking about works? Isn't it all of grace? Absolutely. It is all of grace, but grace must work. It will work. A grace that is effectual will bear fruit. That's the point. And this is one of the reasons I think we should do away with, in our theology, with the term eternal security. I've never really liked the term, and it's it's a borrowed term. We shouldn't use it. We should use, as the Reformers historically called this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. It was the idea that we are indeed secure in God, but we are secure as we persevere. It couples the two together. And so I would encourage you to use that word when it comes to this doctrine. Now, do you remember, what was it that Pilgrim lost when he fell asleep? I said it earlier. What did he lose? A scroll, a little roll. Now, what does that scroll represent? We know he tells us assurance of life. It was the role that assured him that he was a Christian. And so pressing on will bring inward assurance. It is objectively necessary. If you don't travel on the road, you are objectively lost. But when you are traveling on the road, you are subjectively assured, encouraged. Now here's where it gets difficult because we don't always have assurance of faith, do we? In fact, there were many seasons where we're like, hmm, am I really a Christian? Is this really true for me? Who hasn't known the bitter taste of indulging in sin and then doubting their faith? In fact, the devil likes to send emissaries your way to make you doubt your faith. He loves to have letters that look like they're from our Heavenly Father delivered to you so that the frown of the Father would be upon you and it would make you wonder if he even cares for you. Oh, the devil loves to destroy assurance because a Christian who's not walking in assurance becomes lethargic, becomes hopeless and helpless. He loves to do that. And so assurance is very important. But Peter is telling us here, objectively, the believers will bear fruit. But we will get assurance by doing this. It proves life. It does matter. And so use these means to grow, to have the inward assurance. If you're lacking an inward assurance, maybe it's because you aren't diligent. You're slacking. You have very little time in the word of God. You you get up in the morning. Oh, I'm too busy this morning. Work's more important. And you don't get up and read the word. Be in the word. Be in prayer. Seek him. Know him. Luther said that as we do that, we will go to heaven with a lively spirit and full of confidence. That leads us to our next point, which will be much briefer. Virtues and apostasy. Because the next phrase says here, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Again, look at the word for. It's another explanatory conjunction. He's going to further deepen this out. He says, if you do these things. Now, these things, look at verse 8. 
it tells us what these things are. For if these things be in you, it, it's, it's referring straight back to adding to your faith. And then it says, you shall never fall. And here's where it's really interesting. And it just Peter kicks it up a notch because in the Greek, there are three used words, three words used, sorry, that are so emphatic, they don't translate well into our English, but they really mean this. For if you do these things, you will certainly, certainly not ever fall. The em emphasis Peter is drawing here in the Greek is so strong. Now, what does it mean to fall here? Does it mean to stumble and trip and get up and go again? Is that what he means? It could. In fact, in James, it does use the exact same Greek word, patayo, to refer to stumbling Christians. It says in James 3, 2, for in many things we offend, there's the same word, all. But within the context of Second Peter, it's not that kind of tripping. It's not kind of stumbling and falling and getting up and going again. The, the idea here is stumble and fall to not arrive. It is like a warrior who falls in battle. He's gone. This is apostasy. And we have to be careful here. It does not say that if you do these things, you will never sin. We're not talking about sinless perfection here, but we are talking about holy war. Even the most diligent Christian will to his dying day know he is a sinner, that he stands only by grace. But it does mean that, again, if you are not on this road and you are going on the broad road, you will die eternally. But we need to take the never with such encouragement to remember that as we war, as we grow, we will not fall. The means to protect ourselves from not falling is the holy war. And he says, never will you fall. So the soldier must be encouraged in battle because sometimes the battles rage so intensely in our lives, don't they? The Christian is warring against, the Bible says, principalities and powers. We're not at war with each other. We're not at war with the unbeliever. We are at war with sin, the flesh, and the devil. That's where the war rages. And we are assaulted every day with fiery darts that want to consume us. In our battles with sin, you may sustain intensely severe wounds, humbling losses, discouraging defeats and maybe that's where you are this morning you you went through a, a tremendously discouraging week but remember this the soldier of Christ will never fall he will never be mortally wounded spiritually he is secured because he is persevering in his weakness he may lose a skirmish but he will never ever ever lose the war. So brothers and sisters, brethren, holy ones, called, if you came this morning defeated, beleaguered, dejected with the failures of your sins, then I encourage you to take this verse and to press on. Look to our prince, the great captain of our salvation, who looked ahead, as it says in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the what? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Consider him. Consider Jesus. 
Be encouraged. Raise up holy arms of war against sin. Raise up new, um, new uh, avenues of discipline in your life where you were weak. Make re- resolutions in your life where you think, man, I am so weak here. Be aware of your personal failures so you can strengthen them and fortify those walls within so the devil can no longer look for them because he's always looking for the weak spot in your life. And they're unique to each one of us. Oh, he loves to find them and to prod them and to send his armies up on the lowest walls of the castle to attack you. But be encouraged. You will never fall as you battle this war. You never will. In fact, our king says this in Revelation 3. He says, be encouraged for he that overcometh, he says, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Well, that's not war raiment anymore. White raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Press on, dear people. You will not apostatize as you press on in holiness. Brings us to the last point, virtues and eternity. Virtues and eternity. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. This is the final appeal, the final explanatory conjunction. You see that? For, for, but what's interesting is the next word. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you. Now, this word so is a very common word in the Bible, but guess what? Peter only uses it here. It's the same word where we hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word so does not mean so much. That's not what it means. It means for God in this manner, for so, in this way. And similarly here it says this, for in this way, on this road, an entrance shall be given unto you abundantly. That is the manner. Again, stressing the road. Now, what's this word entrance? It's a very rare word in the Bible. Hardly ever gets used. It stresses not your coming in and being in the kingdom. It stresses the point of entry. The entrance. Access. Coming to the doors of the keep, as it were. Are the doors going to stay shut? Locked? Barricaded? Or are they going to be opened? And he tells us, for in this way, as you grow in your faith, the doors will open. You have an entrance, access into the kingdom. Now we've got to remember, when is this entrance? What is he talking about? He's talking about the time of Christ's final return. In fact, that is the entire thrust of this epistle. Because the false teachers are challenging this idea of Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead. They say, where's the promise of his coming? And so Peter talks in chapter 3, verse 10, of the day of the Lord. And that is thick with Old Testament references of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. And it says then that those who persevere shall be administered an abundant welcome. It's it's interesting because at this point, Peter doesn't just emphasize and say, well, guess what? You're in. You have access. Good for you. No, he doesn't say that at all. (laughs) In fact, he undoes any thinking that our diligence had anything ultimately to contribute. It was the road. But the road we walked on was carved out by God. And every grace we built was a grace of mercy. Why do I say that? Because look at the word, an entrance for so an entrance shall be ministered. That is a passive verb. It is given to us. We did nothing. We received that entrance. It's completely of him. He opens the doors. He unleashes it. He unbolts it because he did everything from the beginning to the end. All glory be to God on high. 
Now notice as well, it says, for so an entrance shall be administered unto you. The word is plural, it doesn't say unto thee, singular. It says unto you. Every believer, every one of us who is pressing on into eternity, we all share together with the company of the saints from all angels. There will be an innumerable company that is gathered to there together around the throne. Multitudes upon multitudes gathered from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to worship God. All of you. But he's not done. He doesn't leave it there. Because this is interesting. Remember the idea of adding to your faith is an idea of quantitative growth, right? That's the idea, add to your faith, quantitatively growth. And we shouldn't diminish from that. But it is contrasted as relatively small, insignificant, compared to the furnishing that God does. Because this is interesting. The furnishing on God's side, it's the same word, by the way, as verse 5. I forgot to stress that. Look at verse 5 when it says, add to your faith, furnish your faith with. Is the same word in verse 10 when it says, administer to you, or these, uh, or at verse 11, sorry, when it says, for so an entrance shall be ministered. It's the same word as furnished. So we furnish our lives with faith. We're adding up here. God is furnishing towards us access, everything. And like I said, just to put them in contrast with one another, this one is so small because he uses the word abundantly. From God's side, what he furnishes to us is a banquet. It is a feast. Our welcome entrance will be enormous into the kingdom of God. Words cannot express the type of entrance the believer has into the kingdom of God. Think of it. Our entrance into glory thus will not be a door that, you know, you've got those holes where who's there kind of thing. Okay, you kind of unlatch and creaks it open. That's not the kind of word that's used here. Flung open doors. Massive welcome into the kingdom. This is splendorous welcome. I I had to think here again of Pilgrim's Progress, and I had to chop it down. (coughs) Sorry. Because um, John Bunyan, who was 12 years in prison, when he describes the point of Christian coming to the gates of heaven, it's pages, it's just glorious. I'll give you a little bit of it. He says this in his dream. He says, Now I saw in my dream that these two men, this Christian and his friend, went in at the gate. And lo, I love this, as they entered, they were transfigured. Talk about a welcome. You're changed. That's your first welcome. Transfigured transfigured and they had raiment put on that shone like gold there were also that met them with harps and crowns and gave these harps and crowns to them and the harps were to praise God with all and the crowns in token of honor then I heard in my dream that all the bells all the bells of the city rang again for joy and that it was said unto them Enter ye into the what? The joy of your master. That's the entrance the believer has as he presses on into glory. What a great God we serve. But we're not done. One phrase left. One more bit to just encourage us to press forward here. It says, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
That's the welcome. It's, it's, this kingdom is everlasting, right? Because all the kingdoms that we bypassed on the narrow road are passing kingdoms. They're fleeting kingdoms. They offer so much, but they give so little. They all burn up to a crisp, but that kingdom will last forever and ever. And so keep your trajectory there and that. But what's interesting when it talks about kingdom, it is thick in Peter's mind. Old Testament references. The Old Testament is, has got plenty of examples of what this kingdom will look like. Look at Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 66, different passages. But here's what's really interesting, I thought, is that this idea of everlasting kingdom is so rare in the Bible that it's only used six times. Six times in the entire Bible is kingdom modified or described as everlasting. Guess where? 2 Peter 1, where we are, one time. The Psalms, one time. And four times, a whopping four times, where? Which book? Daniel. Daniel. It's really interesting. And it's stressed in Daniel. Why? Because Daniel is the book of exile. Daniel is the book of being away from home, away from your kingdom. It is the very book where the covenant people are under foreign rule. And, and Peter's drawing us back to the giants. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who lived how in those foreign countries, in that foreign land? How did they live? Virtuously. That's how they lived. They added to their faith. Turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision. I'll start at verse 1 and I'll skip then to verse 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. And he wrote the dream and told some of the matters. And then we'll skip when it talks here in verse 13, what he beholds. Verse 13, and I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven. That, by the way, is a reference that he's so much more than Baal, the, the gods of the nations, who's the cloud rider. And our Christ rides the heavens and the clouds. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given to him, this is obviously Jesus, there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting, there it is, dominion which shall not pass away, stressed again, shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed at the end of the road is an eternal, everlasting, abiding kingdom. Everything here, everything that's tempting you this week and next week and the next week is fleeting. What the devil puts before you will not last. But then we're not done. Look at verse 27 in the same chapter. And talking about the believers, it says, and the kingdom and the dominion, uh, verse 20, yeah, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given, it says, to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting, there it is, everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You want to talk about a welcome reception? There it is. The kingdoms are thus also grant, granted to the saints. We shall sit and reign with him forever and ever and ever. Talk about a welcome. Talk about an entrance. 
And notice what it says. It is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, dear people, remember Jesus is Lord. We serve in the army of him who is eternal. Every sphere of this world, every corner, every iota, from the largest spheres of the heavens to the smallest things under the earth, all belong to him. Heaven, hell, this earth, the seas, they are the Lord's. Everything is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything from the government that we might be fearing at this moment to parents who need so much wisdom, to marriages that need so much grace, to education systems that need so much foundations, to work which needs to be to the glory of God. Everything is to the Lord because he's the Lord of every sphere. If you have one sphere that you are not doing to the glory of God, renovate that sphere, put it under the word, and bring it under subjection to Jesus Christ. Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper said so famously of Christ's rule, he said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. But equally great, Jesus is our Savior. And what a mighty Savior we have. He is our Savior. Our Savior. Your Savior, believer. The supreme king who stooped down to save wretches like us. Maggots who had nothing to offer. Who only had sin to bring to him. The one before whom the angels eternally, well, didn't eternally worship. When they were created, from then on, they will eternally, the holy angels will eternally worship him. He humbled himself to save rebellious worms. So, where does this leave you? Where does this leave you? If you have not turned to Jesus Christ and surrendered your life to him, if you have not repented of your sins and embraced his free gift of salvation, he is calling you, he is bidding you, he is imploring you, and he is commanding you by his authority to come to him, to yield and subject yourself to him. And then, believers, all of us, pick up holy arms of war against sin. Let us do away with flippancy, with lightness, triviality about holiness. One of my favorite stories was Charles Simeon, the great preacher at, I believe, Cambridge. And if you'd go into his home, above the mantle in his fireplace was a, a painting of a man. And, and people would come in and ask him, who is that man? And he says, oh, that is my friend Henry Martin, the great missionary that went to Persia and translated the Bible into various nations. And every time I look at that picture of Henry Martin, I hear him saying to me, don't trifle, don't trifle, don't trifle. The man that pressed on, he pressed on. And so, dear believers, commit every day to him. Begin your day with him. Repent of skirmishes lost. The devil is raising the powers of hell to destroy you. He wants to rock you from your faith. And remember thus that our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. Don't try to be clever with the devil. He's smarter than you. But we stand in the power of God. And therefore, Peter is emphatic. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And the gates of hell, he heard it. Remember, he made the profession, you are Jesus. And on this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. He will prevail over the gates of hell. He's at Mount Hermon, the very base of the gates of hell. And he says, they will not hold back. The gospel will prevail. And so, dear people, I close this morning with three exhortations. I just repeat the points. Add to your faith to confirm your election. Add to your faith.
to prevent your fall. Add to your faith as the means, the road of a triumphant, abundant welcome into the kingdom of our great God. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word. Lord, may our hearts leap with admiration of the gospel that saved us, draws us together, sanctifies us, and will bring us to glory. Lord, I pray that you would draw us all to behold Christ and to grow ever the more as we look forward to the day of entering into the everlasting kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.